Hi, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to the True Crime Podcast, where we focus on local San Diego cases. I am your host, Renette, and today we have a very special guest for the second time, Raina. Now, for those of you who did not hear the episode where I had her on the first time, she's an ex-crime scene investigator for the CVPD and uh, also Yuma PD, and now currently works for the U.S. Secret Service managing the Forensic Intelligence Unit. Raina, thank you for coming back on. Thank you for having me, Renette. Yeah, of course. Uh, so today we're going to talk about what goes on when you get a call to go to a crime scene. Uh, so why don't you go ahead and take us underneath the crime tape and onto the crime scene? Sure. So um, going back to even getting on the scene, you always have to have your supplies ready to go um, because you could be called out at all times of the night. You have to be stocked and ready. So a lot of times crime scene units will have a crime scene bands or a crime scene truck. So okay. you want to make sure that you are loaded down um, with everything that you may need, depending on uh, what the crime presents at the crime scene. So okay. um, what usually happens is you get the call in the middle of the night. You have a certain time. Um, usually it's the middle of the night. Sometimes it's dur during the day. But you'd, normally it was, uh, for me anyway, my experience was really late hours. So we would get the call and we had a certain time to respond um, to either straight to the crime scene if you had a car that you took home or you would have to go to the police department to get your car and then go to the crime scene. Okay. So when you get to the crime scene, um, everybody's waiting on, on the outside. So the tape is up and they're waiting for everyone to get there so they can start the crime scene investigation. So when you get there, um, you're going to do a debrief. Um, no, I'm sorry, not a debrief. You're going to do a briefing of the crime scene. Okay. So the, usually the officer that arrived uh, first uh, that saw um, how the house looked uh, will be there to be able to explain things like, hey, this is what you're going to um, encounter when you walk in. Be careful because to your left, you're going to have X or, or what have you. They give you some of those uh, details so you know what you're walking into. Okay. Um, so the officer, when they get the call, they're the first responder. They're the first one that that's going into the scene and, and they are responsible for uh, basically rendering it safe, making sure that there's no, um, there's no suspect there that, um, that it's safe to enter and also, um, trying to save a life. So if there's a body on the floor, they need to check to make sure that that body is, um, in fact dead. And there's, sometimes it's really obvious and sometimes it's not. So if it's not obvious, then, um, they're going to call EMS to go out there and EMS will, will go out and, um, they will, sometimes try to resuscitate um, and then take the body if they're, they're getting any signs of life or they will call the person deceased there on the scene. So okay. um, that's another thing when uh, EMS comes right. on and they're trying to, to work on a body or save a life. Sometimes you'll have a lot of their material because they're opening up different, um, you know, tubing and, and all this good stuff. So all the packaging is around and sometimes they even have to um, move the body to do whatever that they need to do. So it's really important to note that, and that's why the first uh, officer on scene uh, is no, is also observing what they're doing. So then they could um, relay those those facts or those details to to us when um, before we go in. So the briefing okay. happens. Um, they go over the call. They go over if there may be um, any secondary scenes that are going on. If they have a suspect in custody, if they're looking for a suspect, like anything that may have happened from that 
first police officer arriving on the scene to however long it takes us all to respond if mm-hmm. the, the, there's some act, um, activity going on. So we could be, so, um, we could be making plans to, okay, we're going to hit this uh, scene. We're going to start uh, processing the scene. But boom, we need, we need more resources for someone to shoot out to, um, let's say, the station because the suspect's there and the suspect needs to be processed. Or um, there was down the alley um, an abandoned car that they stole from the property, what have you. Now we have to send a team out there to process that scene. So um, it's really just getting, a, um, getting all the data so we know how to proceed. Okay. So once we have that... Um, it it really it really depends where you work, but um, I was really fortunate to to be with two police departments that really took care of the scene. And when I mean that is, uh, they didn't let anyone in that that didn't belong there. So of course you have those first responders that are going to go in, they're going to save lives, they're going to clear the scene, make sure it's safe. But they were really good not to let anyone else in. And the reason why you don't let anyone else in is because they can contaminate a scene, they can move things around, they could accidentally kick something that yeah. um, that you know, wasn't in the original position that really can matter to the investigation. So um, they would completely lock down. I've heard horror stories of some police departments that they're, um, they're brass, which brass is like higher level. You have like your, your captains and um, lieutenants and, and that sort. They want to see the scene. Maybe it's like a higher profile case or what have you. They want to go in and check it out. Um, and a lot of times, they do that before the crime scene investigator gets on scene. So it's, that's not good. You cannot let anyone in or out. So you have to be as a crime scene investigator, you also have to be really assertive. So if, um, if the officer is not going to keep everyone out, then it's your job to keep everyone out and you're, you're helping to control that scene. Um, Have you ever asked somebody to get out and they get, you know, because they're higher up, maybe they're brass or whatever it is and they get upset with you. Um, I haven't specifically asked someone, but so on the scene, you also have the scene detective. So the detectives roll out with you too. So you have detectives are working the case as well. Usually have a detective assigned to you. Um, I've been in a situation where I've had to tell the detective like, Hey, can you let so-and-so know that they need to get out? And so they were the ones that were able to do that for me. But um, again, I've worked for really good agencies that we never really had that problem. So it was pretty good. So Yes. So now um, you enter the scene. And one of the first things that you do is you're assessing, you're observing and you're assessing, you're doing the walkthrough of the scene. And um, what you're checking for is um, what's going on, any uh, maybe fragile evidence that you may want to um, protect right away, or um, just making note of what's going on. You're not moving anything Something that might be fragile, just curious. Um, Let's say if Let's say if I walk in and uh, the body's there and close to the body, there may be, I know, like a couple strands of hair that are like laying on top of any item, let's say. And I notice that. Well, that's something that if if people are walking or if I'm even walking and a gust of air comes and moves those, uh, you know, blows away the hair and to a place where now I can't see them, I don't know where they went. Um, that's something like that fibers, um, usually. So you would want to, um, you would want to preserve that. And of course, before you preserve that, you, you need to document that. So you need, you would yes. need to photograph that with the scale and everything. Um, but that's what you're looking for. Anything that you may need to take care of right away. Um, and then also you're, you're looking at how you're going to approach the scene. So, um, meaning approach it as far as processing it. 
So um, you just walk into the whole thing and you're observing, you're assessing. Um, I'm there with my clipboard and I'm documenting. And so notes are everything to crime scene investigators because you are not going to remember everything. And if you don't write it down, you will most likely forget. So um, notes have saved my butt so many times. Um, so I was always a very detailed because I have a bad memory in um, anyway. So notes always saved me. Uh, so I was a, I was, I took just an obscene amount of notes at crime scenes. <laughs> it was a lot. Um, so you're doing that first walkthrough of what's going on. If there's a body at that scene, you're, you're, you know, notating the body, stuff like that. So um, once you do that initial walkthrough, then you're going to put a plan together. So I'd come back out and I would put a plan. Okay. Uh, if I, what if it's like a huge crime scene, meaning this, uh, if there were more than one body or if there was a lot of blood all throughout the house, mm-hmm. uh, you, you know, they were, um, they were running around, let's say while bleeding out or, or what have you, or tearing down um, different things like a struggle throughout the house. It seems like that can take a very long time to process. So when I, when you take all that in, you need to form a plan. So do I need another CSI out here? Can I, can I process this by myself or do I need to call another CSI in? Do I need to call an intern in? Cause uh, a lot of the times we had interns that would come and help with, um, with things like, uh, holding the bag open, holding my clipboard, uh, things yeah. like that, that it's really nice when you have that second set of hands. Uh, so you made a plan for the scene. Like, what what mm-hmm. resources did you need? Do you need again? Um, if nothing is, uh, let's say at the first crime scene, if I'm the only CSI um, on duty, which Yuma Police Department, we are sm- a small agency, and that happened a lot. So really? if there, yeah, if there were only, um, if I was the only one, and there was a suspect down at the police department, then we would have to hold the scene um, to be able to go to uh, I. I would have to go to the police department to go process the suspect. So, um, okay. So going back to the scene. So now we have our plan of attack of how we're going to enter the crime scene to process it. So mm-hmm. now we go in and, uh, one of the first things that we want to do after that initial assessment is we want to document it. So one of the ways that we document a crime scene is through photography. Mm-hmm. Um, so we will go room by room and photograph, um, the scene from every angle. So we call it the four corners. So we stand in each corner of the room and with the wide angle lens, usually just to get the the complete scene. And we just start photographing. And there's so many photographs that are to be taken because um, you start off with the wide angle, but um, if you have any photographers out there, you know that wide angles are somewhat distorted. So Mm -hmm. we do the wide angle to get everything in, um, in the shot. But then usually you're around 50 millimeters or so for your like the true um, focal length of how we see. So okay. um, so we go down and we st- we start taking shots and then uh, close up shots uh, for uh, evidence. Any evidence on the on the scene, um, we're going to take those close up shots with and without a roller, d- depending if we need um, to put a roller down for the the sizing. So let's say if I um, had a screwdriver. Uh, you know, you could see, you could have those really big screwdrivers or you could have like the smaller screwdrivers and it's really hard to determine what size that is unless you have a roller. So when you place yep. the roller down, then you know exactly, um, what size it is. So we've always had, we always have a roller. We have like those pockets, um, in our, in our pants with all our little gadgets and stuff that we're going to use for, um, for the scene. Some, um, <laughs> some, 
uh, CSIs uh, wear those, like, you know, those fishing vests that yeah. like all the, the pockets or like photographers have like these vests with all these pockets. Yeah. Some, um, some CSIs will wear those because there's, there are a lot of pockets there. So you could put all your little gadgets, your pens, uh, so whatever you need. And they, I think that's great. It's great, but I never wanted to look like a nerd. So I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you don't want to see when I go foraging because I ordered me like this little like foraging like backpack that has like all these like different little pockets and areas where I put my knife, where I put my little bags, where I find fruit or greens that I forage. So, yeah. Oh, that's pretty cool. Uh, That's pretty cool. Most of us had uh, legit tackle boxes. So that's where we kept all our our supplies because the tackle boxes you just get like any sporting goods place. And it had all the little bins and um, everything that you need for, Mm -hmm. for crime scene. So. We had the tackle boxes or backpacks. And then as uh, as the – so I started pretty – this is before CSI and everything. So um, I feel like as the field became more popular, more products were made for the crime scene investigator. So yeah. uh, later on, like, there's some really cool things that came out, like these backpacks and stuff like that. So, um, But at the beginning, it was like – it was tackle boxes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But um, still photography. So you, you photograph everything, the outside, um, and there's some photography techniques that you would use, let's say, if it's uh, like pitch dark. So if it's pitch dark and let's say one little street lamp like down the street, you would have to keep your uh, shutter open, basically, let all the light in to be able to expose the scene so it can, you can see what's going on. So okay. photography took a very long time. Um, to do it right. When you did photography right, um, it it took it, it took quite a while. Did you have to take a photography course? Yes, that's a good okay. question. So part of um, any CSI um, like certification or or CSI like if you go for a degree like I had associate's degree in um, crime scene investigations. Okay. Uh, the two of the first classes I had to take were uh, photography. So you do the the basic photography, which is black and white. Yeah. You have to use an older camera and know how to use manual settings. Uh, okay. And you did black and white photography. And then the color photography was like the advanced photography. So mm-hmm. you would take um, basic photography, advanced photography, and then you would actually take crime scene photography. Okay. So crime scene photography, um, you couldn't get into that class until you took the prior two because you had to know all the basics of photography. And so right. crime scene photography was going to teach you um, just things very specific to crime scenes or right. evidence. Uh, and there's a lot of different lights that we use on crime scenes. So um, when you're using a light, uh, you you fo- uh, photograph it in a very um, specific way. So mm-hmm. learning all those techniques uh, as a CSI you. So there's, yes, you have to have a strong base um, of photography down um, for you to become a CSI. Okay. Uh, so that part took a really long time and, but pictures are, um, are the best sort of documentation in my, um, opinion, like going back to see a picture versus having a paragraph written out of someone describing the scene just is completely different. And what even takes it, um, to another level is video. So we Um. do it all the time, but video is, so great to take um, just walking through the crime scene because again, there's, there's things that um, you know, a video is happening. It's dynamic. It's it as you're walking through versus the static image. So um, video is when we had it, we, um, we also did, did a video of the scene. 
So then you said how the photographs like were uh, so important, you know, having those notes like saved you a lot of times. I wanted to ask, uh, what's the best tool at your disposal at a crime scene and why? Like you can only pick one thing. Would it be the camera? Would it be the video? That's really hard because I would say like the first thing I want to say is my camera. My camera can show exactly what, you know, what, what's going on in the scene, but processing, um, collecting evidence, finding that evidence. Uh, there's so many different processing tools that you can use looking for like latent prints in a scene, uh, mm-hmm. straight up black powder and a fingerprint brush is so old school, but it does such a great job. So mm-hmm. if I had to choose two, it would be my camera and then my, uh, my black powder and, and fingerprint brush kit. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we have photographed the scene and we did our, our video. We've done our documentation of our notes of, of what we're seeing. We haven't moved anything yet. We're basically just in documentation mode. Uh, the bot, let's say if the body's still in the scene, um, we photograph the body as is. We do not touch the body because um, in both of, both of the uh, police departments that I worked um, for like mm-hmm. San Diego, Chula Vista PD was under San Diego County. So the medical examiner was, um, had the authority over the body. So we would have to, once we were done documenting and we were ready for them to come into the scene, we would give them a call. They would roll out to the, um, to the actual scene and then they mm-hmm. would do a examination on the body. Like just a quick one. Cause they're going to do the autopsy and everything. Uh, right. they're at, uh, at the, at the morgue. But they're notating anything. They're taking their notes. They're taking their photographs of what they see because the body there in position, the way it's laying and everything is very important to them as well uh, right. before they, they move it. And then, you know, it's open up in the body bag. So uh, San, Chilvis of PD, uh, San Diego County was really, really good about that. So um, you do not touch the body until medical examiner. It's a, okay. one of my, uh, I don't know, it was like my second or third shooting scene, uh, shooting scenes at, uh, Yuma police department. It was, uh, and I won't mention names, but <laughs> I, was, uh, I was, uh, we had a scene where, uh, we had a very senior detective, uh, been around for a very long time. I learned a lot from him, but he was very old school. And, okay. um, it was a little different out in Yuma. It was, uh, the, the detective's um, had, you know, they had a lot of clout there. They, they kind of did a lot of things that maybe belonged to different, um, different people back in San Diego County where, where I was, uh. where I, where I worked. Um, so I remember we, uh, there's this victim shot on the sidewalk in front of, uh, in front of a house, they were all at a party and, and he gets shot, it was gang related. And yeah. we couldn't find the hole cause the victim had like a lot of hair. But oh. we can't touch the body, so we're waiting for. Right. Um, back then, it was the oh god, what are they called? They're called the coroner. It was something coroner, but it was same. Different jurisdictions will name them differently, but it was basically the coroner. Uh-huh. So we were waiting for them, and this detective just comes in and starts poking his finger around, feeling for a hole, and then he the found hell? the hole, and he starts sticking his big fat finger like. In the hole. And I was like, what are you doing? Like, if it was like a small caliber, like the size of that matters, like you sticking your right in the hole could just, you're messing things up, dude. Right. Totally. <laughs> I'm totally digging in there. I'm like, turning around, like, 
is this happening? Is this really is happening right now? <laughs> Everybody was like okay with it. And um, yeah, that was, and then you, you have that situation too, where I'm the newer CSI for them. Um, I came with experience, but I'm still the the new person there. Of so, course, they don't want you telling them what to oh, do. Oh, heck no. And it is, it is very different over there. And if he's putting his finger, trying to find the hole, don't you guys determine what type of gun was used by the size of like the bullet? So he could have just completely like stretched it out, right? Completely stretched it out. Yeah. It's like so a lot of times you like, you can't figure it out, but yeah, if you have a very tiny hole where it's like, you could barely see it, it's probably going to be a smaller cal- caliber um, mm-hmm. like entrance wound, wound. And sometimes they even like when it was really small and I personally never um, had this, but you hear of them, like they're so small, they go in and it kind of like puckers up and almost closes to where it's very hard to find. Oh, wow. So the exit wound is always bigger, uh, right. the, you know, the velocity of coming out or the, all the, whatever they call it. Um, but a lot of times it went in and it stayed in there. It lodged in the brain or it lodged in. So you, it's very hard sometimes to find the, the entrance wound, especially if there's a lot of hair going on, stuff like that. Yeah, but you yeah. definitely don't put your finger poking around oh, trying to find it. Finger in a bullet. <laughs> so any oh. of you who are looking to do that, don't ever do that. Don't touch somebody <laughs> unless uh, unless told you can. <laughs> right. Um, so let's say we have the body and we've done our documentation and we're ready for the medical examiner to come out. The medical examiner would come out. They would do their thing, take their photos, ask any questions they needed to ask because they're doing their own separate investigation mm-hmm. um, for for the the crime as well. And so one of the things that we do as uh, CSI is we bag up um, the head. So we'll, we'll bag and tape the head. Um, we'll bag and tape the feet and let's say if they're barefoot and we'll bag and tape the hands. One of the reasons why you do that is because there could be trace um, evidence on the hands, fingernail scrapings, um, things like that, that you don't want them to dislodge and transport. Um, right. So if they do fall off, then they fell off in the bag and then we right. analyze those bags. Um, after okay. that. So um, yeah. So then they get put in the body bag. That's another thing too, that we take as evidence is the body bag. So when they're put in the body bag, there could be the same thing, trace evidence falling off of the body into the body bag. Uh, so we collect that as evidence too, to be able to, um, you know, use our light sources when we're in the lab to, to see if we can find any hairs and fibers and stuff like that. Okay. So the medical examiner takes the body away. And so we usually do the, uh, we usually would do the autopsy the day after. So it's pretty mm-hmm. quick for a homicide. They'd go back to the, um, to the morgue or to the uh, medical examiner's office. And then we would finish the crime scene. And a lot of times we were still working the crime scene all throughout the night until they were ready to do the autopsy. So we would have to break wow. from processing go to the autopsy. So at the autopsy, we're photographing again, all the different stages of the autopsy. Um, and then we're collecting evidence. So we collect the, the clothes, the shoes, um, we do fingernail scrapings. Um, we do, we collect uh, prints, they're, they're uh, major, they're called major case prints. So we collect all areas of your uh, friction ridge skin. So all on your palms. palms, fingers, feet, what about feet? Uh, so feet, we didn't do normally unless we saw something in the crime scene that, uh, that, uh, I think I had this example, uh, in your first episode that I was 
on uh, oh, yeah. we had bloody uh, just, footprints. Just so you know, I got my pedicure today. Good job. <laughs> I'll send you pictures of my feet, Rena. No, it's okay. I believe you. I trust you. <laughs> we didn't always uh, collect uh, feet impressions, but um, if there were like like the last scene that we talked about um, last episode was uh, bloody footprints all over the mm-hmm. street. So if there's bloody footprints, one of the things that we need to determine are, are, um, is whose footprints are those? Are they the victims or were those the suspects? So yeah. we're going to want to do a complete recording of the friction ridge skin of the victim so we can eliminate them as, let's say, those bloody footprints. Um, or uh, we could say, okay, these are this is the victim. Okay. So we always collect the, the prints as well. And yeah, so any evidence, if there's a bullet that um, they, because if there's a bullet that is lodged into the body somewhere, we've had a bullet lodged into the spine and um, they, they have to find it. So they have to find and account for the bullet. And a lot of times I, I remember one autopsy where they could not find it. They would take it to take the body to x-ray to try to whittle down like where it was. And so he was slowly just slicing off muscle and tissue and everything and kind of looking at every piece of this was on his spine his back area so wow. looking at every strip of flesh looking for that bullet he couldn't find it and so there's a big bucket that sits at the end of um of the autopsy table where um like all the the flesh and and stuff like yeah. that go into so he was putting it in the bucket and um so as he took layers he's like i cannot find it and the third time, I think, when he took it back to the x-ray, the bullet wasn't didn't come up on the x-ray anymore. So he's like, what the heck? So he, even though he was slicing really thin, it was so small that it was in one of those layers of skin, threw it in the bucket. So he took the whole bucket, x-rayed the bucket. Oh, <laughs> my God. The, threw it in and find the bullet. But So, yeah, any bullet that's recovered um, that you'll you'll have to collect and take back and take in possession as well. Okay. And autopsies are probably a whole nother episode because those are pretty intense as well. And one of the things that they do that they sometimes do, they didn't always do it um, because there, there could be a lot of error with them, but trajectory rods. So trajectory rods are like the long um, plastic, usually rods that if you want to see the path of the bullet, you can stick a rod in, let's say if it's the head, you can mm-hmm. stick the rod in the entrance coming out the exit, and then you can see the trajectory of the way that the bullet came into the head and the way that it exited. Oh, okay. So um, they do sometimes trajectory rods, and when they do that, you have to be there to document everything, photograph everything, um, take measurements if needed, um, stuff like that. So whatever they did to the body, um, and that maybe we could talk about later or another episode. Um, there, yeah. It's like its own crime scene, so autopsies could, could take quite a while. So what's like the, because you said that you can be at a crime scene and still working on it going into the next day when they begin the autopsy on the victim. Um, What is the longest crime scene that you had to work? Two days. Two days. For me, two days. And what happened there? That was a home invasion. It was a targeted home invasion. And um, it was a whodunit. There were no clues coming in at all to, um, as to who may have done it. So everything relied, uh, we were waiting a lot of really everything at that point relied on the crime scene and what we found at the crime scene. Okay. So that's another thing too, that's going on as we're, um, as we're assessing and we're documenting the crime scene, if we come across something, 
um, that is pertinent to the investigation. That's why our detect our scene detective is there that they're there seeing it as well. So they can relay it back to their team, other detectives that are elsewhere, um, you know, knocking on doors, looking for, uh, you know, talking, interviewing witnesses and, and things like that. They're doing what they do. Um, and they're able to relate a lot of that information. But this one scene um, in, in particular, he ran throughout the house and you could tell that there's just the struggle throughout the house. And one of the things that we ended up doing, and it was a pretty big house. It was a two-story house. This was um, in, in Chula Vista, a really nice part of uh, Chula Vista. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things that we had to do was we, we just weren't finding much. We, we So there's different types of powders. There's uh, black powder and there's magnetic powder. Magnetic powder is a, um, is a type of black powder, but it's a, very, it's a lot more sensitive. And okay. with black powder, you can, if you have large surfaces, if I'm like, you know, processing a whole wall, black powder is pretty easy because you could just, it's still going to take a long time, but you can literally get your brush and you, black powder is pretty fast to apply. And mm-hmm. what you're looking for is latent print. So we were, the, the guy ran up his stairs and he ended up uh, falling in one of the bedrooms upstairs, but he ran up the stairs. So we were trying to see is there was no railings or anything. So if they, they were both, the suspect was chasing him obviously up the stairs. Did he touch the the hallway, like the like wall. all the walls. Yeah. yeah. So we, um, so we ended up processing the walls with magnetic powder because it was just a, a better processing technique, um, to use for that, that surface and walls can be different. Sometimes they're more porous where you're going to use an hydrogen, you're going to use a chemical, but for the most part, there's like a sheen. Um, I personally like like flat paint. So, uh, yeah. you'd be pretty screwed here at my house, but if, <laughs> <laughs> if there's like a little sheen, like a semi-gloss type paint, it's really nice. Uh, mag powder is really nice for that. Okay. So th- that's one of the reasons why it took so long is because we were really meticulous with our crime scene uh, processing. And it, that's the way it should be. Yeah, exactly. It, yes. And there comes a, a time too, a lot of times we're, um, we're sleeping, like in, we'll take a little naps, especially if you're with a partner in the van, because one of the, the worst things to happen is when you become so tired you start missing things. Yeah. So it is, that's another thing. Don't be a hero. Don't try to stay up for 24 hours because you're, you're doing the crime scene and injustice at that point, because you are going to miss, miss things when you're, yeah. um, so sometimes they would hold the scene for us and there'd be a police officer that would um, sit on it until we went home, got a few hours of sleep, showered, and then we'd come back and finish. Uh, so that was that particular two day or though we were just getting naps like in, um, in the van and stuff because it was such a active scene. Like there, there was no suspect or anything in, um, in custody. Uh, yeah. So it, it definitely wears on you. I always say that being a CSI is, is for the, the younger folk. Yeah. (laughs) That was, they got the energy. They got the energy for it. That was, you know, in my 20s, early 20s, um, mid, I think I stopped going. Um, I want to say I was about 31 or so when I transitioned full time into being a laboratory scientist uh, because okay. I was tired. It was just, yeah. it just wears on your body. And, and when you're in a, work in a really busy area, you just, have you just don't have really good sleep and if you're trying to raise a family at the same time at that time I was a single mom um so I had my three girls putting them through school I was going to school to get my bachelor's degree and then I was doing um CSI work as well so it was just a lot and I was tired so 
Um, there's some, there, this one lady at uh, San Diego Sheriff's, she retired as a CSI and she's mm-hmm. probably one of the best CSIs I've ever known. She was just born for it and she loved it and she was so good. Um, yeah. so I think she's probably the only CSI that I know that retired as a CSI because usually you start, um, and it's a great, great, um, it's a great, great job. It's fulfilling. It's never the same thing. It's, it's awesome. But usually you're going to transition into, um, a lab job because eight to five yeah. family life, exactly. on your sleep life, yeah. stuff like that. So, um, was there ever a time Rena, where you, um, drive by a crime scene that you worked at? You're just driving, like maybe to go to Costco to go get some groceries, and you drive and you see that scene, and you're like, "Oh, I remember when I, that like there was this brutal murder that happened right there." Or all the time, yeah, all the time. Especially in, I don't really visit uh, Yuma a lot, um, but Chula Vista. All my family lives in Chula Vista, so whenever, um, whenever I drive by a scene, it's like even I, I think I forget about those scenes until you drive by it, and even I've been on the east coast for i don't know five six years and when i came back drove to chula vista i wasn't even thinking about my old job crime scenes anything like that i was just thinking i was going down third avenue and i was like wow third avenue has completely changed all these new stores and everything and boom they just it just starts coming back so yeah and what what's the crime scene that stuck out to you that has happened maybe on third avenue if you're able to talk about it Third Avenue. Or by my house. <laughs> You're like particularly. <laughs> yeah, Second Avenue. Um, Third Avenue, Fourth Avenue. On Fourth Avenue, there was uh, one that sticks out was a, um, it was a road rage incident where there was a father with his son. And that was really, really sad. Yeah. Um, the road rager just got out and killed him. And oh, it, my gosh. Yeah totally sucks. Um, that one comes to mind. Uh, the trolley stations we've had them at, I don't know what's going on with trolley stations, but late at night, nothing's good. At least back in the day, I don't know if it's any different now in Chula Vista, but, um, just nefarious things going on uh, around the trolley station. So, um, eight street trolley, E street, um, the whole, there's a hotel. I won't name it because it seems that there's a lot of people that stay there. I'll never forget that one, that the hotel scenes. Uh, I will never stay at a hotel in Chula Vista ever. Really? Yeah. Nope. Won't stay in a hotel there. Um, houses. You, it's not the Palomar Inn, is it? Or No. That's right off of Palomar. No. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mentioned to Oz, I had him on, on the last episode and off of, um, when we were not recording, I had mentioned to him that I always felt the shadiest looking motel in Chula Vista was the motel on Broadway and it's called the Harbor View Inn, I yeah. think. <laughs> yeah. And I've, I told him that that was the shadiest one. And he had mentioned to me that that's where he found the guy who uh, harmed the little girl, Laura Arroyo. Oh yeah. That's a very sad case. But it's crazy to me because I've always felt like that was such a shady looking motel. And yeah, and you know, he worked one like a very notorious Chula Vista case over there. I I remember when I was younger seeing like prostitutes walk by over there. And it was a bad area back in the Mm -hmm. day. It was a bad area. Laura Royal, was that 
It might have been um, the one. Was that the one where everyone would go see the billboard? Because yes, yes, I remember going to the billboard when I was. This is before I was a CSI. Yeah, um, yeah, that was that was wild. That I remember the whole city of Chula Vista kind of rallied around that little girl. And and yes, thank God that they caught the guy who did it. Thank God for DNA advancements. Thank God for the group of people. For is it the cold case unit that decided to go and process that DNA again? Thank God for that. Yeah. And thank God if we're, I mean, we're talking about CSI um, and what you do. Thank God for that CSI investigator that actually collected it. Yes. That's those cold case, those cold cases always just amaze me because at that time, like a lot of the cold cases, this was like pre DNA. This is before they would, they even knew DNA existed. And there, there was, I remember one, uh, one cold case and I can't remember the, uh, of who it was, but it was there in, uh, Chula Vista, PD. It was a um, a woman that was raped and killed at a, at a park. I think it was at Lauterbach Park, uh-huh. and um, this was way back in the day. So they had the the they were in their the, I don't know what they were thinking, but they're like, okay, let me swab her neck. So they swabbed her neck and different parts of her body, thinking like you know maybe one day we'll be able to use this. And yes. at the time they couldn't, because I, I think at that time, maybe it was just like DNA typing through male, female, something like that. Yeah. But, um, or blood was like, Oh, what was the blood type um, of, of the, yeah. it wasn't anything to where it would identify. It was more like a class characteristic versus like a, um, another, um, but that swabbed, they um, analyzed for DNA years and years and years later. And they got a CODIS hit. Um, wow. the DNA profile. So they were able to arrest that uh, man where he was, he had like a, a family. I, I want to even say he was in the military. Oh um, my gosh. He was a grandfather and they went and arrested him clear across the country for this crime that he had committed when he was younger based off of that wow. CSI that swapped the neck right. of that girl. Right. So that's good uh, when they, uh, like you said, you have to be like, you're so meticulous with things. That's a great thing to be, especially if you're a crime scene investigator. Yes. It is a hard job too, because um, you, like you're an expert in crime scene um, processing, crime scene investigation, but you also have to be like, um, like a jack of all trades for all the other disciplines that you're not an expert in. Um, because you have to know what, what, um, what they do and what they're capable of to be able to even collect the evidence. So let's say if you, um, you know, you see glass in a scene, well, you're going to want to collect the, the glass. You, you as a crime scene investigator are not really going to, unless it's like, uh, let's say a car and you're able to like a big missing piece that looked like a big puzzle and you could clearly like, Oh, okay. It came from this. But if there's just like glass or any kind of trace evidence, maybe soil in a crime scene, you have no idea where that came from. You're not going to analyze it there. You don't have the, the instruments to do that there on the scene. So you yeah. need to collect that. You need to be aware of like, okay, what can they do with this evidence? And they, meaning the other forensic scientists in the different um, disciplines in the, in the forensic laboratory, what can they do? I need to collect it because there's a chance they can do X, Y, and Z with that. So yeah. it's a lot of knowledge. You have to have a huge knowledge base of, um, of what everyone does. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's a difficult job. It's, it's not easy. It's, you know, emotionally it's, it's very difficult. You have to be able to, um, look past that and, um, and do your job. 
So when you applied to work as a, a CSI, did they stress to you the importance that this job is not for the faint of heart? No. No? Not, oh, not okay. when I, they do now, but no, they did not. Um, I was, yeah, no, I was fascinated. Like I, so, so again, um, I started, I took forensic science classes. So, um, just through the textbooks and at the time, our instructor was the crime lab manager. So he was able to talk about a lot of his crime scenes and what lessons learned from him. So okay. you get the gist of it because you're in those classes, but there was never any talk about, um, emotional, psychological, like that it was there was no talk about that. So okay. um, it's, I know they do that now and they focus on that now and they focus on um, like counseling. And if you, especially if you go to like a, a scene with a, a child or something that would be yes. like they do that. Um, they have a counselor, like a, a someone always available for you. But back then when I started, it was kind of old school. You didn't, you, we didn't know about the brain and like the effects and like we know now. So there yeah. wasn't really those, um, those, warnings or resources that was just kind of thrown in there. Yeah. Well, uh, so then when you began, what was it like when you seen your first dead body? So one of my first dead body experiences was, um, I was a trainee and I was, um, I used to shadow the crime scene investigators and one of one of them, we were at the medical examiner's office, and mm -hmm. there's a, a part of the autopsy where they have to open the brain. And so this is my open the cranium to get to your brain because they need to take out the brain and they examine it, they weigh it, all that good stuff. So um, when they open up the cranium, there's like a circular uh, saw that they use, like a legit circular saw that you buy at Home Depot. That's what, that's what they're using to open up the cranium. And so they're telling me to get close to this uh, body, like to see what's going on. And what I didn't know is that the two guys training me, like, had stepped back. So I'm like really close to this body. The um, the assistant, so the pathologist doesn't open the cranium, but usually there's an assistant there, mm -hmm. and um, he's just getting in there with the cranium. And I'm just looking down, and I just bone fragments and just cranium head is just getting all over my shirt like and I look <laughs> down like what is even happening right now and I turn around and everyone's laughing at me basically because all that flies around and yeah so that was um that was my first experience with the body and I didn't react negatively to it it was um I it I don't know. I've always had like this, this barrier. It was, it wasn't like this overwhelming emotional thing for me seeing, seeing a body. And I think you sort of need that. Like when you're in, in yeah. the field, like if you get too upset seeing a dead body, um, then this is not the field for you. CSI is not the field for you. And you're going to see bodies in all different stages, decomposing, burnt, uh, all different things. And if, um, if that bothers you, then no, this is, yeah, you got to get out of the field. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so when you get to a crime scene, what's more reliable fingerprints or DNA? Um, that's a great question. What's more reliable? Interesting choice of words. Um, what do you mean by reliable? What would be more reliable in proving your case that it was this person 
Is um, it fingerprints or is it DNA? I would imagine DNA, right? <laughs> See, so I'm going to ask you the question now. Why would you think it's DNA? Because like when I did my 23andMe, I spit into the little tube. They got my DNA and it proved that was me. I got to see other family members that I know for certain are my family members. I got to, it proves it's me. Like that's my code, right? Right. Well, And then my fingerprint, okay, like it, it's got to be extremely rare. Nobody has the fa- same fingerprint, right? Right. So you use, like, so, think about how you use your fingerprints. So to unlock your iPhone, could anyone unlock your iPhone? No. When you take your thumbprint oh, in the DMV, why do they take your That's right. Yeah, when they, when they scan your fingerprints, you get a job, like, as a teacher, or they take your fingerprints, and they run it through the database. Like, there's, yeah. Oh, that's right. And DNA, Maybe it was think, kind of a foolish question. <laughs> it, it is a foolish question. It is actually, that comes up a lot because I think people – think that DNA is more reliable if you have DNA and fingerprints against each other because um, it's just like it's been the hot thing for a while since this, yeah. like, you know there's some amazing cases that are being solved with DNA DNA is very different than fingerprints mm-hmm. um, the surface you, you could get on it is just it's amazing it's very sensitive now if DNA is different let's talk about the difference between DNA and fingerprints okay okay so we could um, yes So DNA evidence and fingerprint evidence, two very different things. Mm. So fingerprint evidence, what's great about fingerprint evidence, especially when you are on a a crime scene, is let's say if um, the classic bloody knife with the um, bloody fingerprint on the knife handle. Mm. And um, what you can do with fingerprints is, uh, let's say we can do a, a quick comparison. Oh, it's not the victim. Whose is that? We can take a photograph or we could... Um, we could process that print, photograph it, lift it, whatever we're doing. And we yeah. could immediately take it back to the lab and we could search it in, um, which we do for, for homicides. This is one of the things that we do is um, we'll take it back to the lab and we'll search it into our APHIS databases. Mm-hmm. We have huge national um, APHIS databases, which are um, just these repositories of fingerprints and palm prints known ones of offenders of the military of civilians of us federal workers we're all in this big system that is okay. searched so one of the great things about that is it's quick it's quick you get your result pretty fast so if i search this bloody print into an APHIS system and i come back with john smith that's and i get it verified and i identify john smith as a bloody fingerprint that night within if i can get it all done within let's say an hour they can go and arrest John Smith based off of the bloody fingerprint all okay. that night. So th- that's where the power of, of fingerprint evidence comes in is that it's quick. Um, the databases are quick to search. We, we as latent print examiners, and so as a CSI, uh, I was not a latent print examiner. Uh, now I am. Well, actually, yeah. I'm not. I did it for the majority of my career and then transitioned out of that. But as a latent print examiner, um, you can make those decisions. Uh, Pretty quickly after you, after yeah, I mean, if it's a good print, I mean, it's pretty quick to come to that conclusion. And then you have to get a verification, verification, which is an accept second examiner to come in. But that's why you have that second on-call person um, that would come out and verify that for you. And boom, they're able to go after John Smith. Yeah. So um, fingerprints, when you identify someone, it is, it is pretty, you can never say a hundred percent 
Um, it can't, can't be anyone else because, well, how do you know? You haven't compared everyone else in the world. And, yeah. um, you, but it's out of how long have we been, um, searching databases, worldwide databases for fingerprints. And to this day, and our database, the algorithms on these databases are amazing. Computers are just getting better and better. So yeah. it makes it harder for us because they're coming back with these very good, close non-matches. So that yeah. it always still comes back to a human because a computer might say like, Oh, here's this high score. This is, this is really close. This is probably the person the human could look and do that um, examination and say, Oh, it was really close, but it's not it. And so oh, we're making that okay. final determination, but still to, to this day, I'm going to knock on wood. No two people have found to have the same, um, same finger. fingerprint. Yeah. So when an identification is made, it is very strong. So then okay. you get into, you have DNA evidence, which can be really great. So DNA evidence, you're looking at, there's blood on the scene, um, semen, if there was a rape, um, it's just different, different surfaces. So let's say if, someone threw a rock through a window um, and a rock is not really conducive for fingerprints. Uh, it's very hard to process the rock to, and lift anything up um, off of it. So mm -hmm. what would be great for it? Maybe a rough surface rock, rock, it would be DNA because you're touching the rock and sloughing off some of your skin cells from your hand. Well, I'm going to yeah. solve that rock. That's like, if I had a rock and I had a choice of doing prints or um, DNA, I'm going to do DNA all day long. But if okay. I had a piece of glass, um, that is just flat, non-porous. I'm going to do latent prints all day long. Or you could even do both. That's the beauty yeah. of, of our world now is that in a lot of uh, crime labs, you can do both. You can process for latent prints and then you can swab that for DNA after. And the black powder or the chemicals that you use are not going to inhibit the DNA analysis. So okay. that's, that's the best of both worlds. And that's what we try to do nowadays is like we're, we're going to try to use so yeah, both are amazing for different reasons. Um, so it just takes a little longer to process DNA uh, because okay. of the steps that they have to go through in the lab. Um, you, the results are just going to take a little bit longer. I was watching um, a YouTube video of a crime scene investigator, and he was saying that whenever he went to a crime scene, his favorite thing to process somebody's DNA was a cigarette lighter. Oh, that's a great one. Whenever he came across a cigarette lighter, it was just like, this is golden. Yeah, so. <laughs> totally. Yeah, yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I love that. Um, and one of the, I did want to mention like the the main for all your budding CSIs out there is yeah. one of the first things that we're taught as a CSI. It's called uh, the low card exchange principle. So okay. it's um, after Edmund Locard that um, back in the day theorized this, but we use it to this day. So his theory is that there's always going to be a transfer of something when you come into contact. So basically, yeah. you're always going to leave something behind or take something with you. And mm -hmm. if there's contact, that's just naturally going to happen. And it is your job as a CSI to find that. Um, so it's there. It, it might be very minute. You may even miss it, but it's it's going to be there. Going back to that crime scene investigator, I was watching his YouTube video. He had said that saliva itself does not contain any DNA. And like I had mentioned, I did one of those 23andMe kits. And so, you know, I'm spitting into that tube so it can collect my DNA. Uh, but he said, apparently, 
It's our skin cells inside our mouth that have this DNA code. And since our mouth is so active, we're regularly shedding skin cells in our mouth that's mixing with our saliva. And then I guess that's, you know, what will uh, make our DNA show up. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, when we, so your DNA um, is in the, basically the nucleus of your cell, right? So our yeah. whole body is made up of cells. So saliva swishing around your mouth is there's cells. All, you you have all your your cheeks, the inside of your cheeks, your tongue, the roof of your mouth, everything. That's saliva is just being swished around there, picking up all those cells. And when you get uh, like when we take uh, DNA samples, like we'll go mm-hmm. take samples of people when we're trying to eliminate them or even suspects uh, to compare the DNA profiles we found on forensic items. We're taking buckle swabs, so we get swabs and we're swabbing the inside of their cheeks trying to pick up those, um, those cheek cells, the buckle, um, buckle cells, but is the buckle cells? They're called buckle swabs. Not sure exactly the cell name. I am not a DNA analyst. I will tell you that right now. (laughs) (laughs) Buckle swabs inside of their cheek for that. Um, and another way, uh, that you can think of it is a lot of, uh, people think that, uh, feces or poop has DNA in it. Well, mm-hmm. it doesn't. So there, yeah, there are some times where there'll be like poop on the scene or poop in the toilet. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the detective would be like, hey, can we get DNA from the poop in the toilet? Or what if the suspect went and didn't flush the toilet? Like, yeah. Um, so the inside, like, let's just say if you had like a, a turd on the floor of a crime scene, you're not <laughs> going to. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't stick. First of all, I would not collect a turd. Um, but I would collect evidence from the turd if that was like, let's just say if they defecate in the middle of the, whatever it was, their sick thing that they wanted to do yeah. their signature, whatever people do sick things. I wouldn't take my swab and stick it in the middle of the turd to thinking that that material is going to contain DNA. But what I would do is I would swab the turd. So as your DNA is making uh, your DNA, as your um, feces, your turd is making its way through the, your intestinal tract. It's picking up all those cells from your um, from your body parts, basically from your intestines. So as it's, it's moving through, it's gliding through the sides of your intestines. It's picking up those cells. So when you know it evacuates um, and it's a turd on the floor, what you're going to do is um, you're going to swap the outside, looking for those cells that you can pick up, hopefully for DNA. DNA. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Have you ever had to search a vehicle for evidence and um, surprisingly the only evidence present is like a small, like literally one small strangle, single strand of hair, like uh, belonging to the suspect? I don't know if I had that specific single piece of hair, but fibers, yes. So cars are a pain for the trace examiner. And when I say, okay. especially if your car is dirty. So us as CSIs, when we process a car, um, especially if we're looking for trace evidence, um, there's a couple ways you can collect it. And I've sat in the back of like um, SUVs and the trunks, like where you have that carpet, like that really thin, fuzzy carpet. Mm-hmm. And I have went over, like we have these tape lifts that is basically just like a, a pretty strong tape. And mm-hmm. you're getting the tape and you're, you're um, dabbing it across every section of that carpet, picking up any of the fibers that are laying in that carpet. So of course you're going to pick up a lot of fibers from the car, but you're also going to pick up any, let's say if they, uh, if they had a person there um, that they threw in the back of the car and then they try to vacuum and clean it up, 
there's still a possibility that you could find a hair or fibers um, from that car. So I've worked my way through tape lists, um, so many cars that way. But another thing, and trace examiners hate when we do this, is uh, they have these little like forensic vacuums. And you have these little vacuums with these, uh, with these bags that you put in for each, you know, scene or car, if you're, oh. if you're processing multiple cars. So you attach your bag and you're basically just vacuuming all of everything that's on the floor, on the seats, everything. And so we'll fill up like the little bag of all the crap that you pick up from a car, but then it goes to the trace unit and the trace unit has to go through every single thing that's in that bag, vacuum bag. in that vacuum yeah. bag. And so there they're looking for um, hairs or fibers. Um, I know one case I had in Yuma where, um, some of the tape lifts I did to come back to fibers, a girl that was raped in a um, car. So, oh. um, definitely works, but that's a big job on the back end for the trace examiner. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. If you were going to pass along, uh, one observation or skill that you think could benefit the average person and, uh, hopefully staying safe and alive, that you've learned while working in forensics, what would it be? That's a tough one because um, I, I'm i very paranoid by nature now uh, for me and my kids just because of the work we do. But yeah. a lot of the crimes happen and you don't see them coming. You can prepare for everything and it's going to be that you're in the wrong place at the wrong time and it just happens. Uh, but I would say the one thing is be aware of your surroundings. Yeah. Be aware of your surroundings. Turn around. Know people that are still there following you or know um, just things. Be observant at all times. And uh, yeah, just don't be um, oblivious when you're even when you're walking through the mall. Um, yeah. Like if you if you're just observant and you see maybe like a tussle going on or like a, an argument or something, don't get closer to see what's going on. Go the other way because who knows if they're going to pull out a gun and, right. and you're there in the crossfire. So I would say just be very observant of your, of your surroundings. You'll be very surprised of what you, what you see. And yeah. So I was at um, a coffee shop uh, near work the other day and uh, there was this girl and she had a tattoo and the tattoo said, look, and then a period and listen, period. And I just thought like, oh, I wonder what that is. And I was telling my friend that I was on the phone with and she was like, oh, that's like, um, like in the, they call it like murderinos, people who are obsessed with watching true crime documentaries, listening to podcasts and stuff like that, that it's kind of like their motto, like, you know, how they have uh, stay sexy, don't get murdered. That's mm. a saying that they have, but look and listen is like one of the things they say. Uh, I like that. Do. I like that. Mm -hmm. That's that's really being observant. Yeah, and just that quietness too. Listen. Yeah. I mean, you could you could take in a lot by just listening. But yeah, yeah no, I like that. Um, definitely be observant. So going back to the crime scene, uh, let's wrap that up really quick. So yep. when the body leaves, um, we're doing the autopsy the next day. Whenever we still need to finish the crime scene. So when we're um, when we need to process it. So now we're processing it for latent prints, which are um, latent means uh, hidden. So mm -hmm. those prints that we can't see with our naked eye, we're going to use these processing methods to be able to visualize them, to photograph them, lift, um, lift them, how whatever our method is um, to preserve them. So we can take back to, um, you know, either you're trained as a latent print examiner CSI, or you're going to take back to the lab for them to analyze. And then also your DNA. 
So you're collecting DNA from um, those areas that aren't conducive for latent prints or um, let's just say only lend itself to DNA for um, example, like if, if there's blood or um, you're not a scene or, or something like that, you, you would do now your, your collection of that. Mm-hmm. And, um, I did want to say, so there's this, uh, there's this book that most of us have to read and, uh, it's so to be certified. It's one of the books that, that, um, you will read and go through. And if your listeners want to know this book, it's really good. And a lot of programs okay. use it. And I think it's just amazing. It's called practical crime scene processing and investigation by Ross M. Gardner. It's an amazing okay. book. And okay. it'll take you through the crime scenes, like um, just beginning to end. And it's strictly crime scenes. It won't go into a lot of these uh, forensic books go into different parts of um, the crime lab and what they do. No, this is strictly as a CSI, what you should be doing. And it is excellent. He does a that's really good great. job. Yeah, that's, uh, check that book out. But I what, think I'm going to get it for myself. You should. You totally should. Here's the, the front of it. Okay. But, um, one of the things that he says in here, which is so true, is um, I'm just going to read it. The weakest yeah. link in the chain of criminal justice is the CSI. If evidence is not collected and collected properly, it serves no function in defining the truth. And I love that he says that because even though that you're observing it and you're collecting the evidence to take back, there's you have to maintain the integrity of that evidence. And if you right. don't m- maintain that, integrity it's just going to be kicked out and you can't use it and um and it just meant nothing so the collection of it like you um you want to separate things like you wouldn't want to put two different items from two different rooms in the same bag because now you're mingling stuff like that so if you mess it up from the beginning there's nothing that can be done at the end without a defense attorney or even the judge throwing it out in court same as chain of custody if I collect it from the scene. I am not handing that off to anyone unless I document that chain of custody. So if the chain of custody is not documented, it's so easy at the end when you go to court for a defense attorney to say, to say how do you know who touched this? What if so-and-so, like, you don't even know who touched this evidence. The chain is not um, documented. Someone could have done something to it um, that you were not aware of. Uh, you didn't seal it. Oh, well, anyone could, like, the property court could have went in there or what, whatever. So the integrity of the evidence is really big too. And that's your job as the CSI because you're the, the um, initial collector of that evidence. Right. So, and if you're uh, working, like it could ruin a whole entire case, right? Whole entire case. So we call that um, in so many different things in criminal justice system, but it's called fruit of the poisonous tree. So um, if the tree was poisoned, any of the fruit that it bears is worthless because it's yeah. poison. So if you executed a search warrant incorrectly, anything you find in a search warrant from um, from that incorrect um, uh, execution of it, it, it gets thrown out. It doesn't matter. You could have found the bloody knife in the car if you didn't do the search warrant correctly. It doesn't matter. Anything that was collected off of that, it just gets thrown away. So yeah. it's really, really important. And that's the same for uh, the CSI and the evidence. If you don't collect it correctly, if you don't preserve it properly, if you don't... Um, seal it if you don't maintain that chain of custody um it means nothing and right. um that's just so sad just huge disservice to to the case um and yeah that should be one of the things yeah. yeah people 
people learn. And when, even when you take it back to the crime lab, like you have a locker that you will temporary storage that only you have the key to. And so you're maintaining like, Hey, this was in my custody the whole time. Yeah. So okay, love that about that book. So you're going to process the crime scene. You're going to process the Berlin Prince DNA trace. Um, uh, if there's, you know, firearm evidence, there's drugs, if drugs are on the scene, uh, Soil, if you have a body that is decomposed and uh, there's maggots or there's flies, like at certain stages, you're going to, going back to like the jack of all trades, like knowing all the different um, disciplines, knowing that, hey, maybe I want to call out an entomologist to this crime scene. So they would be able to collect because you can tell, um, you know, how long a body's been there off of that. Or um, you just got to know who to call because you, you aren't an expert in everything, but if you know of, um, you know, a piece of evidence that can be useful, you can call in those experts. So you, you guys never have to collect uh, maggots or, you know, any sort of insects that can be on a decomposing body or anything like that? Yeah, definitely. You you can definitely collect um Okay. Because, yeah, I flies. think at the, when we did the uh, crime lab tour, if I remember correctly, uh, we went into the decomposing decomposing room or decomp room yeah and uh the woman giving us the tour there was like a small uh freezer and she asked us can anyone guess you know why we have this small freezer and you know we knew it wasn't for a body because it was not large enough to fit a body Uh, but there was someone who raised their hand immediately and she was like that's got to be where you put insects on anything uh on a decomposing body or anything and she said yeah that's like wow that's that's crazy that she guessed that yeah 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 you definitely collect them and um from the autopsy too so if there's um yeah maggots are the worst but you definitely do some collection of that it's always good to get an entomologist out there on the scene just because they have so much knowledge of that but Mm -hmm. you don't always get those resources um out there they're so specialized or you could um, like odontology uh, if there's bite marks, if there's um, oh. bite marks like around a nipple, like you you want to be able to photograph those right, um, correctly or get um, get a odontologist out there to the autopsy to go out there and um, basically a forensic dentist that yeah. is going to um, be able to be better at um, analyzing that evidence than, than you are. But if they're not, then you have to make sure that you document them correctly. And it's a, a pretty specific scale that we all carry around with us. And um, and you're going to photograph those so they can analyze them through the pictures. So, uh, Raina, what, <laughs> uh, what would you rather have to deal with having to get at a crime scene? Would you rather gather a maggot, like some maggots, or would you rather have to, like, clip toenails off of somebody's feet? Maggot, suit? thousand times. <laughs> I don't know what it is about, like, toes. Like, I guess. I don't know. I've just seen some really nasty feet. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, so is that all of everything from a crime scene then, Rena? Um, pretty much. The, God, there's so much more to say. But in general, yeah, you're going to get your experts out there. If you have blood spatter, there's blood spatter mm-hmm. experts that know how to interpret it. Um, get, call them out. Or um, if, again, if they aren't able to go out, just you have to know how to be able to preserve that. So usually it's through... Um, it's through photography and rulers and the way that you photograph is very specific for blood stains. So you're just going to go through whatever you have um, there at the scene. And then after you're done processing, you're going to do about two or three walkthroughs of that scene. 
So now you're going to start looking for things. Uh, so you're going to walk through all your documentation is done. Everything's done. Now you're going to start, you're, you're doing a search now. You're going to look mm-hmm. through the house. You're going to um, look through the drawers. You're looking for anything that could help you um, lead back to um, lead back to what happened. And right. at that time, a lot of times our detectives uh, that have been waiting outside holding the scene will come in and help us search. And if they find something, then they know just to leave it until we get there to photograph it and collect it. Um, and then you'll even do a third search. So it just really depends on um, on how many uh, how how complex your scene is. And then yeah. after you're done processing, you're done. Um, collecting your evidence, securing your evidence. Uh, and then you're going to have the debrief. You have debrief um, with everybody. Uh, was there anything that we missed? Uh, detectives may be bringing in new information from the field. Like, Hey, I heard that he was a, a drug dealer. Did you guys, uh, and he hit it in the garage behind blah, blah, blah. He's getting some Intel from somewhere Then, did you guys look there? Oh no, we didn't. So then we'll make like a, just make sure that, that we do, we've done everything that we should have. Um, we didn't miss anything. And, um, and then we go on for there and then they release the scene. And once you release the scene, there's no getting it back. Okay. That's why you have to make Cause it's tampered, right? Like, yeah. Like people are going to come in and out of there. The cleaners are going to come things like that. Family's going to come back in if it was their home. Um, and there's just no getting it back. And sometimes you miss something. So I remember, uh, it, it wasn't my scene. It was, um, it was, uh, my partners where it was an outside scene. It was a shooting. And like two days later, they released the scene. And two days later, there's a big motorhome like that parked on the street. And there was a bullet like on the side of the motorhome that we just oh. we missed because it's the outside scene. It's larger. I mean, it's, right. uh, so sometimes we'll get called back like, hey, we found this. We're like, oh, crap. We got to go back and collect that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, sometimes it just never ends. Um, yeah. So that's. That's it. You go back to the crime lab and that's where the fun starts. Like you, um, you as a CSI, depending on how your lab is, but um, how we ran it is we processed all the evidence that we collected. So we processed it for latent prints and for DNA back at the lab. You have a lot more chemicals, a lot more um, tools. You have all your light sources. Not that you don't take light sources to the the crime scene, but you have um, just very strong ones there at the lab and you're able to um, analyze, do a little bit better there, more thorough. Yeah. Uh, so you go through all the evidence and you're talking about hundreds of items of evidence, usually for, um, for a homicide. So yeah. that whole fun begins and um, you'll be in the middle of that. And then boom, you got another call out. So you got more evidence, like more, it's like sometimes it was just nonstop. Yeah. Um, that's, basically the gist of it. I know I'm missing a lot. And I know if any other CSIs are listening out there, they're probably, ah, Raina, you didn't, yeah, they're, I'm sorry. I missed something, but (laughs) if you get any follow-up questions um, from anyone, I'd be happy to, to shoot those back to you. But um, yeah, that's, that's basically the gist of, of crime scenes. Well, Raina, thank you. And all of the men and women of law enforcement, thank you for keeping us safe. I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. Of course. Thank you so much for having me, Nat. Of course. Um, If any of my listeners would like to suggest a local San Diego case, uh, please feel free to reach out to me on my Instagram page, True Crime Podcast. The handle is true, T-R-U underscore C-R-Y-M underscore P-O-D. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Thank you.